If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, I think we're on, yeah, there we go, good. Well, the 1920s was known as the Roaring Twenties for its surging economy, and in the late 1920s, The government incentivized the Great Plains by creating opportunities for prospective farmers to come in masses and buy land and build homes and farm. They came in droves to farm 100 million acres centered on the panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. By the early 1930s, as we're aware, we were hit by depression economic depression, drought, and high winds. The high winds of the plains began turning the panhandle into the Sahara Desert, or as many commentators noted, it became known as the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl was popularized by John Steinbeck in Grapes of Wrath, but unknown to the nation, he had received much of his information from an eyewitness account, a journalist named Sonora Bab who not only experienced the Dust Bowl as a child, but she actually returned to her roots to document the suffering. And she did so in her book, Whose Names Are Unknown. A little bit description of these Dust Bowl storms, I think might help us even to illustrate some of what we're going to see on a spiritual level with Hebrews 12. They would describe hundreds of black blizzard storms that would come in two miles high, 1,500 miles long, 900 miles across. The dust blizzards would turn midday into pitch black night. Families would sit in their homes, covering their heads with wet towels to keep out the penetrating dust. Hundreds of storms swept through. They would cover homes. Sometimes they would walk out after two days worth of dust blizzard and find that they could walk right up to their two-story roofs. The cars were covered, cattle would breathe in the dust, it would turn into mud and suffocate them from within. The innocent person, if he was caught outdoors, wouldn't survive. It's a fascinating story, this is not in my notes, a fascinating story of, they they would tell jokes, it was their only way to survive during that time, and cowboy would say, well, I once came upon a cowboy's hat, and I pulled the hat up and found a cowboy down there. He said, I'm so sorry, sir. He said, that's ah, fine. I'm just worried about my horse. <laughs> His horse is below him. It's, that caught my attention. But to survive with all that, you'd have to tell jokes. The worst of it all is the dust pneumonia. It would fill up the lungs of young and old with dirt, would fill up with mud, and they would vomit and cough mud. Of course, it forced them to wear masks to survive. But even then, because of dust pneumonia, many of the young and old perished. 3.5 million, it's estimated, moved out, many to California. The bad thing about soil is that when it's picked up and to, turns into dust, it, it covers everything alive and kills it, and then it, it's a downward spiral, creates more dust. They were afraid that it would cover the entire nation, especially when New York and Chicago received estimated 12 million pounds of dust. They were unaware until 
it began to reach that far across the nation. Of course, coming out of the Industrial Revolution, New York and Chicago suggested, well, all we got to do is pour concrete over the Great Midlands. No problem there. I mean, this stuff would stretch not just the panhandle, but all the way up to Minnesota, down to Texas. They had no idea the immensity of such a task. It wasn't until Howard Fresnel, a soil scientist, taught the farmers to build terraces to capture the water. He taught them to go back to the old plows that would plow deep rows and then to plow along the contours of the land. He said there needed to be a change of perspective, a change of attitude. Well, our, our text before us is Hebrews 12, and we're typically, when we think of Hebrews 12, we think of consider Christ, run the race with endurance. And maybe we think of family-loving discipline, or maybe we think of the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. But what's interesting is he is actually addressing an issue of bitterness, that was what caught my attention with the Dust Bowl. The way the Hebrew writer, the Holy Spirit, describes bitterness, it reminded me of the dust that begins to envelop the lungs, to torment the lungs like sandpaper, fill up with mud and begin to destroy from the inside out. And then you can't stop it there. It begins to spread from one to another. It became for me a very graphic picture. And even the solution, because we're going to see in the solution of grace is to dig deep rows by grounding yourself in Jesus Christ as the foundation of your faith. And we're going to see that there needs to be terraces, a family love and discipline that's involved in this. And we're going to also see the contours of the land that we are part of is the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion as the solution to this. But before we do, let me uh, make us a little uncomfortable by bringing some commentary from Edward T. Welch in his book, A Small Book About a Big Problem. He asks, what is anger? He says, the way we define anger makes all the difference. And I found this fascinating. We say we're talking about bitterness, but why is he addressing anger? Because Ephesians 4 says, let's put off all bitterness. And then he correlates it with wrath and malice and anger, all part of the same root. So what is anger? Well, number one, anger, he says, indicts others. It says, you are wrong. So anger is about making judgments. He says, look closely and you can see a judge presiding over a courtroom or pronouncing the verdict. Anger goes a step further. It says, you wronged me. And this is where things get complicated, Welch says. He says, wise judges recuse themselves when things get personal. They step off the bench when the case involves wrongs committed against them because they, they know their judgments will be biased. But in our anger, we do not recuse ourselves. Rather, we adopt the roles of judge, plaintiff, and prosecuting attorney. So we indict others. We say, you've wronged me. And then anger, thirdly, acquits itself. He writes, instead of tracking its biases and seeking help, anger says, I am right. He writes, now now things are not going well in the courtroom. The judge has closed the case. That's us. The pleas of the accused are ignored. And whatever relationship there was... It is now in flames. He writes, relationships do not do well in a courtroom. Perhaps we were right, but we're not being humble. Perhaps we were right, but we do not love. This is why Jesus, he continues, teaches us to leave the courtroom or to enter it as the accused rather than the accuser and judge. 
And he quotes from Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. And with what measure you measure out to others, it will be measured back to you. Finally, he gets to the definition of anger. He says anger includes this. Anger specializes in indicting others, but is unskilled at both self-indictment and love. He continues, the truth is that we see someone else's offenses in high definition and our own through rose-colored glasses. To correct this, Jesus tells us to judge ourselves more rigorously than we judge others, to take the log out of our own eye rather than before we pursue the speck out of our brother's eye. Okay, so we'll wrap it up with this. This is where it gets convicting. He writes, given our tendency to minimize anger, here are some words that can bring out our anger into the open. He gives us covert anger, cold anger, and hot anger. So first, covert anger. It's kind of secret. It's hidden. He writes, sarcasm, just kidding, grumbling, complaining, gossip. Sarcasm says, you are stupid and I am not. And then it adds, just kidding, as you enjoy your self-righteous vantage point. Grumbling and complaining are the refrain of all anger. I want something and I'm not getting it. Gossip publicizes judgment and convinces others to agree with the verdict. Cold anger. Silent treatment, withdrawal, indifference, cold shoulder. He writes, withdrawal and silence are nasty. They are forms of punishment. You will not show your favor to the wretched soul until he or she begs for forgiveness and makes amends. Indifference, he says, is worse. I don't care about you anymore. I have banished you into exile. And then hot anger, jealousy, quarrels, rage, envy, hate. Envy says, I want what you have. And jealousy takes one step further and says, I deserve what you have. And you do not. Well, the context of Hebrews 12, it's kind of the centerpiece of this wheel, the three spokes of consider Christ, family, love, and Mount Zion, the very center that he's addressing is this, and we find it in verse 15 of Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it, it's urgency, it's a warning, see to it language, that no one, and this is corporate, not just individual, yes, we're to look at our own lives, but it's to watch out for one another, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That's, that's our context. See, why would he need to address bitterness? Well, because believers here have lost everything. And Jesus said, deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. And they truly had lost everything to gain Christ. They've lost their family. What Christ had said that he would bring a sword And he would divide families for his name's sake. People who would trust in Christ and those who would despise Christ. They lost jobs. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 tells us they lost property. They lost their family traditions. Think of the temple and the sacrificial system. The smells of the incense. The feasts and festivals. The ceremonies. All created a a Christmas culture in our terms. Easter, Resurrection Sunday culture that they would have enjoyed, all gone for the sake of something that was immaterial, that was to be received by faith. So these are some of the bitter dust storms that they were experiencing that he needs to address. And secondly, is the the danger of, of suffering. They were suffering for their faith. And we see that clearly in Hebrews 11, verse 35 
where some were tortured. This is fascinating. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Some saw it as maybe they were so tortured that to try to hobble through life, there's no, not much you could do there and just sought the gates of heaven through death. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. These are the dust storms they were facing. And third was apostasy. As you can imagine, many who had put their faith in Christ whom they couldn't see, who is said to be seated in the heavens, a crosswork that's in the past, a family that's in heaven and the one on earth is struggling, a heavenly sanctuary and temple, a heavenly home. They thought, this is, this is crazy. And they abandoned the faith. So bitterness, as you see this warning, says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So how do we apply this? Well, I think it's helpful to understand a little bit about apostasy. The way theologians describe um, the church is that there's the invisible church that we, we don't see. We don't see who is truly saved. We can only see the fruit. So we have the visible church, those who are gathered together, made up of our children, made up of friends and family and professing believers, but we don't know the secret of the heart. And there are times when those in the visible church demonstrated that they truly didn't believe and they would leave and abandon the faith. And the mark of that, according to Hebrews 12, is bitterness. It was the character of that. In fact, as we're going to see, bitterness its root is anchored to Mount Sinai. And you pick it up in verse 18, for you've not come to what may be touched. And he goes and describes Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was a principle of the law of works. Do this, you'll live. Don't. There's a curse. Mount Sinai reflected the natural law. It's written on our hearts. And so we're good at judging. We understand that obey, be perfect. There's reward, disobey. There's curse and consequence. Mount Sinai pictured that. Bitterness is rooted in the shadow of Mount Sinai. It's the shadow of the works of the law. I am not getting what I want that I deserve. Others have offended me. I would punish them. And the root of that mentality is bitterness and anger. Anger against man and others uh, for offending us, whether it be children or relatives or friends or coworkers, and ultimately against God. And when someone apostatized and rejected the gospel, as Hebrews 6 says, rejected Christ, it was a testament that they lived, their life was underneath Mount Sinai. They had never come to Mount Zion. They never embraced Christ by faith. They'd never seen their need for grace. So do we just write this off and say, well, this isn't me? Well, no, because not only do we need justifying grace to be saved, and we receive that through faith, We come as sinners, the law convicts us, and we run to Christ for salvation. In apostasy, when someone runs away, they're showing that they'd never received the righteousness of Christ by faith. They didn't even receive justifying grace. But what about the believer? Well, we call it sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is that grace that God gives through Christ to grow us. And that too is received by faith. And bitterness attacks grace. That's what the text says. It's failing to obtain grace. So whether you're the unbeliever here today that... It's not trusted in Christ and you're living underneath the works of the law. You want to earn God's favor. You want to establish yourself, live for yourself. Bitterness is a fruit of that. And I want to point you to Christ. And if you're a believer, 
who have trusted in Christ, you're going to struggle with bitterness, and I want to point you to Christ. I want to let Hebrews 12 have its work in our hearts. So let's look at bitterness first, and then we're going to look at grace. We're going to look at a threefold attack of bitterness, and then the threefold protection of grace. So bitterness, it's threefold attack. Well, we've already seen, right, that it Again, in verse 15, see to it the warning that no one, so we're watching out for one another, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So we see a juxtaposition between grace and bitterness. I think we can say that bitterness attacks grace. Bitterness, the word means to cut, to prick, Describes an internal self-inflicting wound. I couldn't think, help but think of the dust grinding away at the lungs and the dust bowl. In Psalm 73, 21 through 22, Asaph says this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. That's very helpful because it really fits with our Mount Sinai analogy that the Hebrew writer gives to us. It's focused on the externals. So he's going to talk about you haven't come to a mountain that can be touched or seen or heard. It's externals. The bitter mentality is focused on the things of the flesh. As Asaph says, I'm like a beast. I'm brutish. I'm ignorant. In other words, I'm living from the attitude and perspective of this life, not through God's heavenly revelation as Ecclesiastes says, from above the sun perspective, God's sovereign perspective, I'm living from my perspective under the sun and it produces ignorance as to God's purpose and plan for my life. In Acts 8.22, Peter confronts Simon. You remember he was enamored by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and he tries to buy grace with money, Peter says. And he says this, for I see, this is Acts 8.21 through 22, for I see, Peter says to Simon, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity and chained to iniquity. Why? Because the principle works. He wants to buy grace. And those two don't work together. They're opposed. So the first attack is bitterness is at war with God's grace. It's at war with God's grace. It's rooted under the shadow of Mount Sinai. We're trying to be good judges, but as sinners before a holy God and sinners before sinners, we can't use that ethic to build and establish relationships. Certainly it allows the world to turn. There's rewards and consequences in life and training and work, but to build and restore broken relationships based upon the works of the law doesn't work with us, with God, we can't come up to the mountain. We couldn't even touch the mountain. We can't do that with one another. It's a war. Bitterness then is rooted in the principle of justice, which is good and wonderful, but it tries to deal with sinners through the works of the law. It can't. Bitterness then stews on what I deserve and the punishment that I think others deserve. I can't help but think of coffee. I have a, a relative that really likes to reheat coffee. I'm not a coffee expert, but when I reheat my coffee, it gets really, really bitter. It doesn't taste very good for, for me. I've heard that Starbucks might have a different approach for handling that, but I could still taste that, that bitterness. Not saying that they reheat it over and over again, but that would produce bitter coffee if you do. <laughs> what we want is fresh coffee grounds and run it through that filter. 
right? And so in the same way, if we sit there and stew over what I deserve and others deserve, we live in that, it produces bitterness, embitteredness. We need the fresh grounds of the gospel. So bitterness is at war with grace. How does it make war with grace? Well, it fills up the heart with trouble and defilement. You see this again in verse 15. No root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The word for troubled is used of demonic torment. So bitterness torments the soul with its due. And it doesn't just cause trouble, it also produces defilement. So again, I can think of, I mean, the dust ball is just in my mind. It's grinding away at the lungs, and then these poor children are coughing up mud, it defiles, it fills it up, and they suffocate. This is what bitterness does. Now, for the believer who'd come out of the Old Covenant, when he sees the word defiled, he thinks of being separated from God, touching dead animals. He thinks of leprosy and what it would be to be unclean as a leper and to be separated from the community. He thinks of of corruption as it's illustrated in the pictures of the tabernacle Ministry, but he also understands that those are pictures of relationship with God, that we stand not only legally guilty, but corrupt and defiled. So it is at war with grace. It's the source of agitation, trouble, demonic, because James says that this comes, this is a wisdom from hell, and it produces defilement. And then thirdly, the third attack. It leaves no room for repentance. Verse 17. And he's using Esau. So let's go back and look at verse 16. So that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So sexual immorality, according according to the Holy Spirit here, is rooted in bitterness. When someone comes to me and said, I've committed adultery, I've been to pornography, I have committed fornication, I tell them, you're bitter. And that's what the Bible says. They'll say, no, I'm not. We go through this whole ordeal of what are you angry at? What are you upset at God at? What do you think you deserve? And from that springs trouble, defilement, and sexual immorality. Esau is the example. But what about Esau? Why, why, why couldn't he embrace the promises of God? Verse 17. For you know that afterward when he desired, so it wasn't due for lack of desire, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance, that's our word for room or environment or opportunity, to repent though he sought it, with tears. So it wasn't that he didn't desire it. It wasn't that he didn't seek it. Even with tears and sorrow, there was no room for repentance. There was no room. What do you mean there's no room? Well, that's why he says, for you've not come to what may be touched, Mount Sinai. He gives us a, a key into this. To be bitter is to live under Mount Sinai, the works of the law principle. But as sinners, we're going to be the judge and we're going to judge sinners. And that's not going to work out very well for us either with God or with other people because other people are doing the same thing with us. They're judging us as sinners, right? So what does that produce? I had entitlement. I deserve. How dare this be taken away from me? This was my expectation. This is what you owe me. I, I, until you make amends, I'm not going to give you any attention. We're going to abandon you and leave you, right? That, what is that? That is a direct opposition to grace. Grace is over here saying, I am broken. I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. I need the grace of God. I need him to give himself as a gift through the crosswork of Jesus Christ. It is directly opposed. Bitterness is anchored to works of the law and the flesh. 
Grace is anchored to the provision of God in salvation. For, for Esau, there was no room to repent because he stood underneath an entitlement. God owes me. My dad owes me. My brother owes me. My mother owes me. And he desired it. And he sought for it. And he wept over it. But there was no room for living faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and the promises. There was no room. That's its third attack. So how do we prepare a room for our hearts to receive grace? What we're asking for is we want some deep rows, deep rows, right? We want some terraces. We want some to understand the contours of God's grace. Well, first of all, the first grace protection to bring us from the Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, from bitterness to gratitude is this, consider Jesus' saving work and his conduct. But his conduct will have no value to you unless you, by faith, rest in his work. And so we see in 12, 1 and 2, in the classic text, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you understand verse 15, bitterness, all of a sudden you see this as a very close weight. That's almost, it's inside of me. I remember some of the testimony of the dust storms as they would come in. The mothers would say it was like a great serpent that they could hear moving around the house, trying to penetrate through every crack and cranny. And then it would get into their food and it would want to go even down their throats. They're trying to keep it out with the wet towels. Well, this is a, a bitterness that it cleans from the inside out. How do we run with endurance in light of this temptation? Verse 2, looking to Jesus. I love the present participle. It's constantly looking to him. What are we looking to him for? As the founder, it's a word that underlines that he is the arch ruler, the, the chief, the author, the source, the beginning, and perfecter of our faith. That's a word we get telos or telescope or telephone. It's to look forward with a goal of completion, of perfection, an end goal of consummation. What I love about this is he's underlining that Christ is both the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He brackets us. That is, there's no room for works. He's the foundation of our faith. Our faith goes deep into the soil of Christ, trusting in his provision, his, uh, his work on the cross to pay for our sins, his perfect life, to obey the law of God for us, that's credit to our account, his resurrection and his ascension. He sealed off our works by his uh, ministry of, of founder and arch ruler of our faith. And then he puts a ceiling on it, if you will, the foundation and the ceiling, or if you turn it sideways, the brackets, by underlining that he's the perfecter of our faith, he's the consummation of it. And what he's done is he's actually underlined the cross the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, that's the foundation, and despised the shame, and he seated, here's the perfection, at the right hand of the throne of God, that's his ascension. So in his ascension, that's the perfection, and in his cross work, that's the foundation, and he's just bracketed us with himself and his work. And there's no room then for us to say, well, I can add to it, or I can do these things to gain heaven, or I can lose my salvation. No, he's saying you need to consider Christ and his saving work. That'll crush bitterness. That'll crush your view of Mount Sinai, that you can wield that mountain to judge others or judge yourself or to judge God. You need Christ. 
Now, once you recognize you need him, you're part of the family, you've been justified by faith in Christ, it's a one-time deal, it's received through faith, we find we can use him as an example. And so in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I love how he says, consider him, and then the hostility was against himself. He invites us to look at Christ's person. Call it the hypostatic union, in which we find in one person, Christ, we have the full divinity and full deity. We say, very God, very man, truly God, truly man. So it invites us to look at Christ's person, to remember that the one who bore our shame, who stepped down into this world of sin and curse and judgment, that he in his deity is the eternal, beautiful, powerful, glorious, holy, righteous son. And in his humanity, we see his beauty of gentleness and humility and mercy and grace. And the beauty of this one person of Christ, two natures, he steps down to provide the righteousness we need, atonement for our sins, to open up the gates of heaven, bring us into his family, provide an everlasting city, Everlasting righteousness. This is meant to encourage our hearts so we can make war with bitterness. So that we wouldn't live underneath the shadow of Mount Sinai, but underneath Mount Zion. This is how we do battle with bitterness. The idea, the belief that we deserve and that we're anchoring things in this life, holding on to what can be touched like a beast. We have a fleshly perspective and he invites us to look to the most glorious person, and his blessed work for us, and to think if he's done that for me, and he's given his example for me to follow, to encourage, not to get into heaven. I don't follow his example to get into heaven. As a believer, he has opened heaven because of his faithful work. And now that I'm in the family, already in heaven, enrolled in heaven, I can follow his example as my great older brother. And I can look to the character of our father who is so gracious and saves sinners. So first, consider God's saving blessings for you in Christ. And it's twofold, his saving work and his example. But secondly, remember God's family blessings, his familial love, if you will, his family blessings. Because oftentimes when we go through trials, we have the mindset that it's Mount Sinai again, that we're being punished, that God is against us, that life is against us. It's a threat to me. I'm I'm clawing for survival. And so the bitterness is produced from that. And he says, wait a minute, you need to understand that for the believer, you're in the family. Christ has already borne wrath for you. You're not being punished when you're going through difficulty. You're being, and the key word here is trained. You find it in verse 11, trained. It's our word gumnazo. It's, it's built off of, uh, well, that is the word it's built off of. We get gym from it or gymnasium from it. It's training. And that radically changes your perspective. You think of a, a father training his children right? To overcome, to work through the difficulties or a mother training children or a older brothers or sister training younger siblings or a teacher or a coach, different perspective. We want what's best. We're training you for life and that gives you motivation. In fact, he says it in verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. If you understand that it is out of love, then even the fact that he's disciplining me actually encourages me to endure, Think about it. You're doing sports, volleyball, basketball, swimming. The fact that you are growing as an individual in your work and as a person encourages you to keep enduring. 
Why? Because in this case, he says, God loves us. He's training us. How does he train us? Well, verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The world's not against you, believer, is what he's saying. God it relates to you as sons, as, as children, as his family. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So to have a false view, to live under Mount Sinai, is to prize God's discipline lightly, not in a training manner. It's out of punishment. And so we become weary when we're reproved. And he goes, it doesn't need to be that way. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. The fact that he disciplines you is that he loves you. He wants you to be conformed to his character because you're a child. I remember my kids, when they were younger, we joke about how we wouldn't discipline with a family discipline the neighbor kids. And sometimes they probably needed that, but we would end up banning them from the yard for uh, two days because of some very inappropriate behavior. And I told them, I discipline you in, in a certain way because I love you. I do not discipline them in the same way. He says, God is treating you, verse 7, as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, every believer participates in this training as sons. So if you think that you shouldn't be trained, well, what does that put you in? Illegitimate childship, not sons. He uses the example of earthly fathers who train their children. And he says in verse 10, in the middle, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness to be conformed to his character. Now, he doesn't say he does these things to get us into heaven, that we earn it by some kind of holiness that we accomplish, but we're already in the family, right? He loves us. We're sons. We're his children. We're his daughters. But he's conforming us to his character, to share in his holiness. It's for our good. Now, for the moment, verse 11 says, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love that. It seems painful now, but all of a sudden, you wake up the next day, you planted your garden, and all of a sudden, there are those, uh, the flower garden, the roses are growing, and I'm going, what just happened? And my wife's saying, what just happened? You don't sit there and just stare at it, but over the process of weeding and tending to the soil... Boom, you wake up and there it is. And in the same way, he encourages us with his discipline. In the moment, it's difficult. But we wake up, if you will, and see the peaceful fruit of righteousness that he's produced through his training. Now, what are we to do with it? Therefore, knowing this perspective that God trains us with love, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if you're not characterized by holiness at all, then no desire, no no understanding of your sin, no seeing your need for Christ, no desire to reflect him, then, well, and you're not disciplined (laughs) to see your sin and look to Christ, then you don't belong to him. So how do I belong to him? Look to Christ. Trust him by faith, verse 1 and 2. Why does he say strengthen the weak? Make straight paths for your feet. What does bitterness do? You've seen it, right? The hardened face turns inward. You can almost see it bow the body. It's a fight and survival. 
Everything's against me. Turning inward. Life's against me. My husband's against me. My wife's against me. My kids are against me. Everything's against me. What is he saying we do with them? We spiritually encourage them with who Christ is, with God's love that he can take even these conflicts and use them to train us so that we can be encouraged that we belong to his family. So strengthen those drooping hands, strengthen the weak knees, make straight paths for the feet. Now, all these are true because of our next, our third provision of grace. And that's the new covenant blessings. The new covenant blessings. And we can look to Christ by faith as the founder of our faith, the end of our faith, the consummation of it through his ascension, his his cross work and his ascension. We can embrace his family discipline and his love as he's training us, not punishing, training us as children because of this beautiful new covenant that has come down from heaven above as a gift. But first he wants us to understand that bitter spirit comes from the shadow of Mount Sinai. So he's going to take us to Mount Sinai, verse 18. So we're jumping. We've already unpacked the center of the text. Now we're moving into the new covenant blessings in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, external, right? A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound, so we're touched sound, of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. You see, God's love of discipline and his uh, provision of Christ produces endurance. This does not produce endurance because it's unapproachable. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I, I tremble with fear. So notice... It describes an attitude and relationship with God based upon works, based upon Mount Sinai. And we have not come to God through Mount Sinai. That wasn't possible. Mount Sinai, the law of God, Galatians reminds us as a tutor to actually say, you can't come this way through the works of the law. I know the law is written on your heart. I know you're good at judging God and judging others and judging yourself, but that's to show you your sin, drive you to Christ so you can rest in Mount Zion, which comes down from above. And so he says in verse 22, but you have come. We belong there because of our representative Jesus Christ. He has entered Mount Zion and seated at God's right hand. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. How about that? God has so provided all of our salvation so that it rests in the heavenlies. Why? So we wouldn't look to ourselves, the things that can be touched and seen and heard. He gives us the gifts that are rooted in heaven so that it exercises faith through the provision of his grace. And so as John Bunyan said, when he was struggling with assurance, he he realized that his righteousness is literally in heaven. That Christ is seated in the heavens and that's his righteousness so he can't take away from it or increase it. He's secure in the righteousness of Christ. It's seated in the heavenlies. Bitterness comes from being attached to the things in this world that are passing away. And using the works principle, I deserve, I earn. You deserve, you've earned. Punishment or reward. But the gracious provision is from above. It's rooted above. As Peter says, it's undefiled. It's reserved in heaven for you. Notice not only does he describe the heavenly Jerusalem, 
but also describes the, the heavenly people. He says in verse 22, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. That's the, the assembly of the people of the firstborn, firstborn underlining Christ as the heir. It emphasizes the heir of all things. Isaac is called the firstborn, even though Ishmael was uh, geneal- genealogically the firstborn. It's emphasizing heir. So we are the assembly, the people of the heir, Christ, I love this, who are enrolled in heaven. What encouragement to us, even though we're present here on earth, our citizenship, our enrollment is in heaven. So there are the citizens, if you will, the angels, and they're in festal gathering. It's not fear of punishment. They're not in sackcloth and ashes. It's, it's ceremonial. This is to encourage their hearts as they've turned away from the Jewish traditions and all the external ceremonies, and they've turned to festive garbs of our groom, of Christ. This is where our, our people belong, our family belongs in heaven. And notice the two with whom we have to do, the God who is the judge of all. And then we see the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the benefit of those with the righteous standing who've entered into glory, they've received the consummation of that perfection. It's glorified bodies. No sin in full hearts. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So how can we come to God as judge? It makes me think of Mount Sinai, but it's not. Because this judge doesn't come to us out of punishment for our failures, but has come to us in the provision of Christ. A mediator of a new covenant who has provided his blood to redeem us. So now this judge under Mount Sinai would be a threat. Don't touch, don't hear. But now as judge, he's our security for the judge is faithful and true. And he has accepted us without compromising his law through the work of Jesus Christ who paid for our sins and provided the righteousness of the law. We are secure. That judge is for us. He's declared us right because of the work of Christ. Now, what was a threat as a sinner before God trying to earn his favor and to earn uh, the favor of one another or to punish God and punish others, Mount Sinai principle. Instead, we come over here when we rest in our God as our judge, for he has paid for our sins. Now there's some warning in verses 25 and following. He says that if God who warned from Mount Sinai and people rejected him when he shook the earth, how much more so when he speaks from heaven? And I'll just throw in there, when did he speak from heaven? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He spoke from heaven. One of these days he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. So if we're trying to find hope on Mars or the moon, heaven and earth are going away. The only hope is in the Savior of heaven, the King of heaven. And so he says, look to him. In verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's going to do with our bitterness. We're anchored in this world. He says, look upward. (laughs) It's secure for you in the hands of Christ. It can't be shaken. Then let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We, We give him gratitude. We worship him with our lives. Now, real quickly, this just flows out to chapter 13. Let brotherly love then continue. You're now free to replace bitterness with the deep roots of love, with the contours of the new covenant blessings, 
of the terraces of the family of God and his loving discipline. His promise in verse 5 is he will never leave us nor forsake us. In verse 6, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 8, how about the person of Christ? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves me with an unending eternal love. It doesn't ebb and flow. He's for me. How do we respond in verse 15? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then he closed with a wonderful doxology. If I could close with just a little story. My wife's got the green thumb. My son's got the fish thumb. So any little fish he gets, this thing just grows up. And they're very responsive. We call them Mr. Fish. He actually like hits the tank when we walk in the door. Hey, here I am. How are you? I'm so happy. It's crazy. Well, one day I walked in. Well, I heard. Uh, my wife actually walked in the living room and yelled, Chris. And I come running in and there's Mr. Fish on the floor. It's like, oh, he's dead. Take a picture for our son. I'm like, okay, I'll go get something to pick up this wet fish. And then I walk out, all of a sudden I hear, no, he's alive, his eyes weakened, he's shaking. So I'm like, oh, he's dying. I'm running in there, scoop that thing up, throw him in the fish, and then he's happy. It's been six months. But one eye is a little dried out and got a problem. <laughs> I just thought two mountains, inside the tank, outside the tank. Guys, it's so easy to jump out of the tank, out into the worldly mindset. It's going to produce bitterness. You're going to dry up spiritually. You're going to lose the joy of Christ. But... He has so provided a taste of heaven by the promises of his spirit and the ministry of the word and the proclamation of the word in the Lord's Supper and baptism and the fellowship of the saints. This tank, if you will, that we can thrive in and be encouraged in God's grace and deal with the bitterness whenever we jump out and we want to grab each other and throw us back in. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this chapter. It may, it's easy for us to read. Let's run the race with endurance or to read on bitterness and feel beat up, but to take the whole context in light of real issues that believers were facing in that time and the danger to step into bitterness, but also the danger to watch out for those who have not truly trusted in Christ that are marked by this character. We pray that we'd be faithful to point one another to Christ, to the one who both justifies by faith and sanctifies. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.